and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey and I am joined here again today by the lovely Rebecca and Nicole. This week, Nicole will be telling us all about the case of Richard Ramirez and Rebecca will be educating us on the different typologies and categories of stalking and how it played an instrumental role in this case. I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of mutilation, sexual assault, physical assault, stabbing, shooting, murder, and brief descriptions of sexual assault involving children. And with that, I will hand it over to Nicole to tell us about Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Yeah, so I just want to preface this episode saying that we kind of preemptively chose Richard Ramirez as the case study for stalking because of his alias as the Night Stalker. Um, we just kind of put two and together and we were like, yeah, let's do this. Um, but in all like honesty, he never really actually engaged in like the classic stalking behaviors that you may think of like when we hear about stalking. Um, but because of this, I thought we could kind of take our own educated guesses after Rebecca teaches us about the different typologies of stalking as to why he was dubbed the night stalker. Um, Because if he didn't stalk his victims, why, why would they name him that? Um, But with that being said, Richard Ramirez does have a really interesting history of crime. So I'm still going to delve deep into that. I got a lot of my information from the book, the night stalker, the life and crimes of Richard Ramirez by Philip Carlo and then the Netflix docuseries called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. I highly recommend both of these sources. Um, They go into so much more detail than I could cover in half a podcast episode, so I really recommend it. The docuseries is only four episodes, each about 45-50 minutes long. Um, The book is quite large, but um, it goes into a lot of details. And he... um, The author actually researched and interviewed Ramirez for three years leading up to his book, and he has over a thousand hours in interviews um, with him, so it's obviously, like, valid information. But on that, to start, Ramirez was born on February 29th, 1960, in El Paso, Texas, to Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, being one of five children. His father worked as a police officer while living in Mexico, but after relocating to Texas, he ended up working on the Santa Fe Railroad. He would often have outbursts of anger and was an abusive father towards his kid and to his kids, sorry, and his wife, often physically abusing them. And I did hear that when he when Ramirez was a child, his father would reprimand him in all sorts of ways. And one of them was by tying him to a cross and then leaving him overnight in a cemetery as punishment. Um, so that's that. Um, as a child, Ramirez had many head injuries while growing up. So he would sustain lacerations to his forehead after a piece of furniture had fallen on him. And he was two at this time. Three years later, he was hit in the head and knocked unconscious by a swing. And after the swing incident, Ramirez frequently had seizures until his early teens. And so this is only 
my speculation, but I think his head injuries played a big role in his future behaviors since I've heard that um, head trauma can be a common like theme and aspect among serial killers. Um, so that's kind of me just putting two and two together. But growing up, Ramirez spent a lot of time with his cousin Miguel, who had served in the Vietnam War. So while Ramirez was only 12, his cousin would go into detail telling him all about the violent sexual assaults he committed, along with all of the other atrocities he witnessed during the war. So in addition to these stories, his cousin also had a photograph of himself holding a severed head of a woman he had assaulted and killed and decided it was a good idea to show this to 12-year-old Ramirez. Um, on top of all of that, while listening to Miguel's war stories, Ramirez would often smoke weed, which he had started at a young age. And Miguel even went as far as to teach Ramirez military skills, including stealth tactics and how to kill someone. On May 4th, 1973, Miguel and his wife had gotten into an argument while Ramirez was in the room with them. And during this argument, he had witnessed Miguel shoot his wife in the face and ended up having her blood spatter onto him. So while Miguel was found not guilty by reason of insanity, he still spent four years in the state mental hospital, and Ramirez was only 13 when he witnessed all of this. Um, after the shooting, Ramirez then moved in and lived with his sister and her husband, Roberto, and it just so happened that Roberto was a voyeur. And so during this time, Ramirez started using harder drugs, especially like LSD, and he gained an interest in Satanism and was brought alongside Roberto to peep into windows at night. So I guess that was a fun activity that Roberto thought he could bond with his, what would it be, nephew with that? Anyways, I don't think I go with my uncles looking into windows, but... Yeah, that's um, a bit messed up. Yeah, especially at such a young age. Like, I, I feel like his intention was definitely to have him start doing that when he was older. Yeah, definitely. But through his teen years, his sexual fantasies began being associated with violence, and he was able to act on these fantasies when he had a job at a hotel. He had a part-time job um, while he was in school. So what he would do is he would enter guests' rooms with his passkey that he had, he would first start to steal from them, but it kind of escalated from there. And one night, um, a gentleman, a guest, had walked into his room to find Ramirez attempting to sexually assault his wife. So obviously, the guest was not happy about this. He proceeded to beat Ramirez up, and Ramirez was arrested. The charges, though, ended up being dropped because the couple um, from the hotel wouldn't testify. So he wasn't actually charged with any of these like formally but at obviously he lost a job that didn't end up well for him but at 22 years old Ramirez then moved from Texas to the Los Angeles area of California and this is kind of when things kind of escalate and um, his crimes start and they start pretty gruesome right off the bat so his first victim was 79 year old Jenny Vincow um, she was found in her apartment on June 28, 1984. Ramirez was broke and was coming down from an in intravenous cocaine high, which was kind of his drug of choice at the time. 
And to fund his cocaine habit, he would break into two to three houses a day on average just to steal and make enough money from selling all of their stuff. And this was what happened the night that he targeted Jenny. So he had broken into her house through a mesh screen covering of an open window. Um, But when he was inside Jenny's apartment, he saw kind of her impoverished living conditions and he became furious since there wasn't anything of value really to steal from her and make money off of. Um, So he was not happy about this at all. Um, And Jenny Vinkow suffered multiple stab stab wounds while laying in her bed and her throat had been violently cut. And due to the nature of this wound, law enforcement could tell that the suspect had experienced killing. And in the book that I read, so in The Life of Crimes of Richard Ramirez, uh, he writes that Ramirez, quote, excited himself for nearly an hour afterwards, end quote. So I assume this means that he masturbated to, like, what he had done in the sites before him. That's just my speculation, like, reading between the lines could mean something completely different. But even so, not a great idea to think of. I was just going to ask if that meant masturbation. Yes, that's what I genuinely think, um, which wouldn't surprise me because a lot of, um, I don't know, there's that theory with stabbing is that men who can't get off use stabbing as a way to get off kind of thing. So it could be some form of like sexual release for him. Um, But after killing Jenny, Ramirez knew he couldn't afford to make any more mistakes. Um, I think he had like somewhat touched a the window frame it wasn't enough to get a print but he was a bit sloppy in his first attack and so he knew that death row was most definitely on the table for him now if he was caught so this caused him to stop using cocaine and he instead switched to the occasional use of cannabis and alcohol on march 17th ramirez bought a 22 caliber revolver stole a a car from a gas station and got on the highway or I guess freeway in the States with the main intention of looking for a victim to kill. After Jenny Vincow, he had decided that killing him, sorry, killing gave him the greatest high that no drug could give. So that night um, while driving, he spotted Maria Hernandez in her gold Camaro and he decided to follow her for three blocks and trailed her as she drove up to her garage. Silently, he ducked under the garage door as it was closing behind her, and he held up his gun um, while walking towards her. Hearing a sound, and this was possibly from his black ACDC hat falling onto the ground as he ducked, um, she ended up turning and saw him and was literally like looking into the barrel of his gun. But she raised her car keys and her pocketbook up in defense as he shot. And miraculously, the bullet deflected off of her keys. Um, She still went down, though, and pretended to be dead as Ramirez continued inside. And inside, her roommate, Dale Okazaki, heard the gunshot and went to hide in behind the counter in the kitchen. But Ramirez kind of saw this and waited for her with his gun up. Um for the moment for her to pop her head up and that after some time ended up happening she had grown curious to see where the possible intruder was or what the commotion was and as she lifted her head up from the counter he had shot her in the forehead instantly taking her life 
So while Ramirez was in the house, Maria Hernandez made a run for it down the alley. But when she heard this second shot, she was worried about her roommate. So she ran back towards the apartment and her thought process was that he was going to leave through the garage again. This I didn't really understand because the garage was closed. Um, But anyways, she made a run for the front door thinking he'd come out the garage. But um, ultimately, he ended up coming out the front door as well. And so they came face to face. And basically, she said, look, you shot me once. Please don't shoot me again. And Ramirez then put his gun down and walked back to his car. So that same night, um, Ramirez continued looking around and driving for another victim. And he came across 30-year-old Veronica Yu. And her name in Mandarin is Silen, I believe is the pronunciation. Um, I'm just going to use Veronica for the sake of this episode. Um, But she noticed that there was a car trailing her, so she initially tried looking for a police car while driving um, to no avail, and so she pulled over to get a better look at him, which caused Ramirez to drive past her, and this frustrated him. He kind of cursed under his breath and thought, whatever, I'll just find another victim somehow. But after that, um, Veronica ended up following him. For a little while and the two of them ended up at a red light together he got out of his car and approached her and after she kind of repeatedly asked why he was following her um she he just kept saying like oh i thought i recognized you whatever all of this stuff but she was like no why are you following me why are you following me um he then tried pulling her out from the driver's side window which was down a little bit That didn't work. She couldn't fit through and the driver's door was locked. But he did notice the passenger side was unlocked. So he went around to that side, got in before she could lock the door and shot her twice. Once in the right side under her arm and once in the lower back as she was running away. And this was only 40 minutes after killing Dale Okazaki in her kitchen. Ten days later, on March 27th, 1985... Ramirez broke into a home and killed Vincent Cesara while he was sleeping. Vincent's wife, Maxine, woke up and was bound, assaulted, oh sorry, and was bound and assaulted by Ramirez, who demanded to know where they kept their valuables. As Ramirez searched the room, Maxine was able to free herself from the restraints and grabbed a shotgun. Unfortunately, the shotgun was not loaded, and this further enraged Ramirez, who would then shoot her three times and then repeatedly stab her body. After her death, he proceeded to then mutilate her body by carving a T into her left breast and gouged both of her eyes out. Um, And he then, I don't know why or what he did with them, but he then took her eyes with him in a jewelry box. Um, um print. sorry sorry why did he carve a t into her chest i have no idea i couldn't really find a lot on that could um, it have been like a cross that's my speculation is that it was an attempt at a cross but he also was quite into satanism so i don't know if it was like an upside down T or like whatever it was to go against a cross. Yeah. Um, 
But that that's my speculation, at least. Because I no, couldn't imagine any other reason why he would cut a T unless that's just the motion he had cut in and then it happened to look like a T. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, yeah. But with this um, killing of the two of them, the Cesara family, husband and wife, footprints were actually left in the garden bed at the point of entry and around the house, which police have photographed and took casts of, showing a men's size 11 to 12 shoe. The bullet casings from that scene, which were 22 caliber, closely resembled those from the previous attacks and police began realizing that there was a serial on, serial killer on the loose and this was the work of one person, not so much the work of multiple people. And so at this point, a multi-county police investigation was underway. The thing that I learned, though, especially from the docu-series, was that in Los Angeles, there are so many different, I don't know if like districts is the right word, but there's so many departments of policing and they just don't communicate with one another, even though they're kind of working for the same thing. Um, So even though it was like a multi-county investigation, it was very choppy because of that lack of communication. Yeah. And that's something we've kind of talked about before is like the lack of communication between police departments in the States. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, definitely a huge issue when you're trying to catch a serial killer who's not killing in just one county or district. Yeah, exactly. But it was um, kind of the lead detective on this. His name's Gil. He's he's interviewed in the Netflix docuseries. And you can't help but just, like, love him. He's such a sweet guy. But he was talking about how he was kind of new to the force. And he put kind of two and two together and was going around asking these districts because he knew they weren't really going to tell him. Um, And that's how he got his information. But no one then was really listening to him because he's like, oh, you're just a new guy. You don't know what you're talking about. Leave it to the professionals kind of thing. And it wasn't until Frank Salerno, this like old time tough guy cop, became his partner that the other cops were like oh okay maybe we should pay attention and listen to these guys then which is frustrating to me but yeah oh well no, that's very frustrating you're like i'm just trying to do my job the best way i can do it but yeah. i need an old guy to help me that's not yeah fair. an old white guy yeah gil was a like <laughs> a young hispanic guy and then um salerno was an older white cop so i think that had something to do with it as well i assume uh, definitely that's just my speculation yeah no i can speculate with that yeah and so a few months later on may 14th 1985 ramirez stroke nope struck again and he entered the house of william and lillian doy um he had shot william in the face with his 22 caliber gun and then beat him up he managed to sur- to survive this long enough, though, to make a phone call out to 911 and um, made it to the hospital from the ambulance. But unfortunately, at the hospital, he succumbed to his injuries. But while William was unconscious, Ramirez bound and sexually assaulted his um, wife, Lillian, before he searched the house for valuables. By now, survivors were able to describe their attacker all as a tall Hispanic man with dark hair 
And another key prominent feature was his eyes. He said, they all said that he had like scary, bulging, dark eyes. And that was a common characteristic with all of their descriptions. Um, And there was a short while where children were being kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and then just kind of discarded and abandoned. And during this time, there was a shoe print left in freshly poured concrete at a site where a child had been abducted and sexually assaulted. And this print looked like the same print they got from the flower bed outside of the Cesara home. And I'm not really going to go too much into detail. Like, that's really all I'm going to say about the kids. Um, But in the Netflix documentary and the book, they do talk about, like, one of the victims that helped identify Ramirez was a six-year-old who had been abducted. And he had kept her for a couple of days sexually assaulting her. And then just dropped her off and said, okay, go call home. Um, they so didn't do they up... know? Sorry. Do That's they right. know that he was the person abducting those children? And Or yeah. is it just highly likely? Yeah. No. So they were, they were able to link it to him. But wow. um, in the docuseries, Gil goes into saying, like, the six-year-old had come up to him. And said, basically, what can I do to make sure that he does not hurt any more little kids like me? And that just kind of, like, struck a chord in his heart. And both him and Frank Salerno, the big tough guy, started crying at this. And they were like, look, like, maybe we leave the kid cases out of this trial and not have them testify because we already have, like, 45 other counts against him. So they chose not to charge him with any of these cases. Um, And that's not to say they, like, just dismissed the cases. Like, they still were able to bring closure to these families. Um, But they didn't, yeah, they didn't charge him with those at the time. Yeah, I guess that's fair. You don't really want to bring those children forward and have them relive a very traumatic memory. Just so that you can catch him on something that you've already caught him on. So, exactly, And they're, like... Yeah, their thought process was he's going to be charged and get the death sentence regardless. So with or without these cases, um, like you said, don't bring them through that traumatic experience again. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, the victim, the six-year-old, she was much older at the time of the interview. She talks about her um, experience in that docuseries, and it's very well done and well-spoken or well-said. But anyways, on May 29th, 1985, so like two weeks-ish, a week later, um, Ramirez entered the home of the elderly sisters Mabel Bell and Florence Lang. Um, They were both in their 80s. He had bound and assaulted both women um, and assaulted them with a hammer he had found in their kitchen. After violently attacking them, he then sexually assaulted Florence and drew a pentagram in lipstick on both her thigh and the wall. And while both women um, survived this attack initially, they weren't found for two days after, until two days after. And um, ultimately, Mabel sadly succumbed to her injuries while in the hospital. Um, But during this attack, Ramirez had pulled the cord 
out of an alarm clock that they had and he had used this cord to bind the woman but what he had done is like he stepped on this clock and yanked the cord with his hand and this left a partial shoe print um on this metal alarm clock that they were able to gather and they said that it closely resembled the other prints that they had obtained like forensics we can't say it was a match but it most definitely was um closely resembling the other prints Um, a month later on june 28th ramirez assaulted 32 year old patty elaine higgins stabbing her repeatedly and violently cutting her throat a few days later, on July 2nd, the body of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon was found in her home a few miles from where Higgins was found. She had been attacked while she slept in her bed, was stabbed, and her throat had been cut in a similar manner as that of Higgins, um, which helped them link kind of the two cases together. Three days later, 16-year-old Whitney Bennett was beaten with a tire iron her room was ransacked and investigators found marks on the window frame that kind of indicated to them that the suspect was wearing gloves at the time. And at this point in the investigation, they weren't able to find a single fingerprint on anything. So this kind of made sense to them. They're like, ah, this is why. But aside from that, at that scene, they found a bloody shoe print Um, on one of Bennett's comforters that looked remarkably similar to all of the other shoe prints that they had obtained. So the next night, on July 6th, Ramirez then attempted to break into the family house of police officer John Rodriguez. Obviously, he didn't know that this was a police officer's house, but he had tried to open a window which had been painted shut, so that window was just never opened. I guess it was just a decorative window at that point um so this caused a lot more noise than he was expecting when he tried opening it and it woke up john's wife she had said something along the lines of like oh john is that you but it was just silence after so she knew it wasn't his uh her what her husband sorry but when uh, rodriguez went to take a look while waiting for the on-duty cops to show up, he noticed a perfect shoe print that had been left in the garden bed below the window. So the next day, um, Ramirez broke into the home of 61-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson. He beat her to death while she slept, but as, like, she woke up midway through, she made sure to fight back and fight back hard And in the Netflix documentary, you hear from her granddaughter about how amazing of a woman she was and just the way that she speaks of her grandmother. I just highly recommend watching that series. Um, And she was just kind of saying she doesn't want her grandmother to be known as the person Ramirez killed. Um, But he, during this attack, had kicked her in the face with the bottom of his shoe and this had actually left a clear shoe print so again very very similar to all the other prints they had obtained um and while joyce hadn't been sexually assaulted this ultimately did not satisfy his need for sex so he left to find another victim that same night and he broke into the home of 63 year old sophie dickman who actually lived across the street from a crime scene tech that was working on the same case or the sa- some of the cases that Ramirez had commit. Um, she was sexually assaulted and robbed. 
And I just find it interesting how many, like, people working on the case had come into, like, had close calls with Ramirez. I feel like that doesn't happen all that often. Um, But that night, she was able to, like, Sophie Dickman was able to move her bed, which she had been handcuffed to, to her window and yelled out for her neighbor, who was the crime scene tech, at, like, 3 a.m. to call the police for her. Thankfully, her and her friends were up at that time. They had been out in the hot tub. So they called the police and they came and figured all that out. But then on July 20th, um, Ramirez purchased a machete and drove around looking for his victims. So he burst into the bedroom of um, Layla and Maxon Needing, and he attacked both of them with this new machete and shot them in the head. After their death, I don't know if he was just taking out his aggressions, but he continued to mutilate their bodies with his new purchase. Only hours later did he break into the home of Chainarong Kovanans and shot him in the head. After he then assaulted his wife, Samkid, um, sexually multiple times and then physically. Ramirez had bound their young son up and dragged Samkid around, demanding she tell him where the valuables were. And while attacking her, Ramirez forced her to swear to Satan, um, which I think became kind of a common thing that he would say to his victims. And a few weeks later, on July 8th, Ramirez entered the home of Elias and Sakina Abawath. He had shot Elias in the head, killing him while he lay in bed. He then handcuffed and assaulted Sakina, forcing her to show him where they kept the jewelry. After this, he sexually assaulted her, and similar to, similarly to Samkid, she was also forced to swear to Satan during her assault. Um, he had tied up their young son as well, but as soon as Ramirez left, uh, Sakina freed her son and went to the neighbors seeking help. Ten days later, Ramirez broke into their home, or sorry, broke into the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. Like other crimes, he shot Peter first in the head and then continued to sexually and physically assault Barbara, shooting her in the head after, but miraculously she survived this attack. And Ramirez had drawn a pentagram on the bedroom wall in lipstick and wrote, quote, Jack the Knife. Um, I think it go ahead. Sorry. Um so he didn't need to kill his victims. He The sexual assault was more important than the murder. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, I don't really, you can't really know what goes on in their minds. But for me, like, he also didn't need to rob them. He mm-hmm. wasn't needing the drugs for the cocaine anymore. Um, and it became kind of an MO to shoot the men first, if it was a couple. And then with the men gone he was like "Mm, might as well assault these women and then after that i guess he i don't know if it's just he didn't want like surviving victims to be able to identify him even though he walked away from a lot of his other victims or not a lot yeah a few of his other victims he didn't really have a need to kill these women um yeah but i guess as he said like it gave him that high that no drug could so assaulting i think okay backtracking a bit so the lead detective gill he had learned in a course he took at the from one of the fbi behavioral and analysts 
um, people during a lecture, he had said basically like a lot, not a lot, many killers get off on seeing the fear in your face. So I think for him, like sexually assaulting and binding and bound, um, assault like physically assaulting these women he could see that fear and that's what he enjoyed and then after he got off on that he's like well i have no use for you and then ended up killing them okay yeah no that makes sense definitely especially with killing the men first because they can't stop them he got rid of the biggest threat but it also caused fear to his victims yeah exactly and so that was the thing too with like dale okazaki's death he had ample opportunity to go around the kitchen counter and shoot her, but he had waited for that moment for her to pop up, see him, see that fear in her eyes, and then kill her. Um, so I think that was a common thing among all of his killings. Wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, no, I just wasn't sure because I was like, he didn't kill her. She, like, left. Like, that seems very sloppy on his part, but I guess if he doesn't need to kill them... To get his release, and that makes sense. So, I'll let you continue. Thank you. Sorry, coffee break. Okay. Um, Thanks. So, a week later, Ramirez then broke into an apartment, shooting Bill Carnes in the head and sexually assaulting Inez Erickson. He had bound Inez and left, but before he drove away, she was able to get to a window and see what he was driving. She had given police a description of both the vehicle and Ramirez, which was then broadcast across news channels, and a teenager ended up seeing the car, identified it as the one that the police were looking for, and was able to get a partial plate number and then gave that to the police. This car was able to be located, and they were able to obtain a fingerprint from the rear view mirror. Excuse me. And from this print... They were able to identify their suspect as Richard. Ram- they were able to identify their suspect as Richard Ramirez. Um, and so, like as you've probably heard, I did talk a bit about shoe prints, but I didn't. I don't really touch on more of this um, because this episode's not the focus of pattern analysis. But essentially, they were able to narrow down the make and the size of that shoe, um, and all of that information gave them that or showed investigators that only one pair of that size make and color had been sent to Los Angeles and that also helped them narrow down um, their suspect pool. I will say though the documentary goes into a lot of detail about this if you do want to learn more about it. Um, Anyways Ramirez's mug shots were shown on national tv and were on all the colors nope were on all of the covers of major newspapers in California. And so they had, once they had narrowed it down to Ramirez as their suspect, they had learned that he had frequented the Greyhound bus station. So what they had done is they set up a surveillance there. But at the time, Ramirez was actually away in Arizona. So when he returned, he, like, detectives thought he would come in from outside into the station, so that's kind of where all of the um, detectives, the undercover cops, were stationed. But he actually came in from, like, the passenger entrance from a bus, and he instantly spot the um, spotted the cops. Even though they were undercover, I guess undercover cops are quite easy to spot because they're wearing, like, dirty, raggy 
raggedy clothes, but their hair is clean. They have nice teeth. Their skin's clean, like that kind of thing. It just doesn't match up. So at the time, he didn't know that the cops were out looking for him, but he didn't want anything to do with them. So he left and he walked out the back to the liquor store that was across the street. But while he was there, he saw his face plastered on the front covers of the newspaper. So this caused him to kind of panic a bit. So he hopped onto a bus, hoping to make it a few blocks to a brother's house. But while on that bus, someone was reading the newspaper, saw the face on the front paper, because how can you miss it, looked up and actually recognized Ramirez on that bus. So the man kind of calmly pulled the cord got off and went to a payphone and instantly called the cops. And so Richard then began noticing that people were starting to stare. They were pointing at him. Um, He definitely knew he had been made, so he tried to make a run for it. And this is when a manhunt had begun for Ramirez and a manhunt involving both police and citizens because they were not happy with him, rightfully so. So at one point, a group of people on the street had spotted him. They had chased him down the street. They had surrounded him. He had tried stealing a couple cars, um, but he had nothing on him, which kind of like bolstered the civilians a bit and were like, no, F you, get away. Anyway, so they beat him up um, almost to the point of death. So police did arrive, intervened as well, um, arrested him, put him back in the cop car. But once he was in the cop car, he was kind of just like, um, like toying with the people around him, which was frustrating. But a lot of the civilians, like the documentary has footage of all of this, um, not obviously beating him up and stuff, but there's a lot of actual firsthand footage of this and people were saying like, oh, if we could, we would have killed him. But anyways, they finally had their night stalker, Richard Ramirez, and three years later, his trial began. The Los Angeles Times reported, though, on August 3rd, 1988, that jail employees reportedly or reported that they had heard Ramirez talking about how he was going to shoot the prosecutor during the trial. He was, I don't know how, but planning on smuggling a gun in. I don't know how he was going to do this or what would even come about it, but the word got out, and soon metal detectors were installed outside of the courtroom, intensive searches were being conducted before anyone could enter, and there ended up being a whole bunch of lines for people trying to get into this trial, and, like, it's just such a strange concept to me, because, like, women were fangirling over him, like, sending nude photos of them, to him in jail like all of these things and would just show up to trial to basically like get a good look at him and swoon over him which is disgusting to me but it'll really kind of like the popularity of it reminded me of the recent like Depp and Heard trial and how people basically just saw it as like a tv show and wanted to sit in on the trial to be like oh I sat in on a famous person's trial even though it was for domestic violence and all of this stuff. Um, But yeah, like there were lines up of people and there was a time where the daughter of one of the victims or the granddaughter, 
one of them, um, was sitting out trying to catch her breath. And she was sitting beside this gentleman. And she was just thinking, like, oh, I wonder how he was impacted by the crime. And she ended up seeing a pentagram tattooed on the palm of his hand, which is what Ramirez had drawn on his hand during the first or one of the days of trial. So she was like, it was just sickening to see that victims and families of victims were intertwined with people idolizing this murderer, um, which is so disgusting to me. No, it's and, very similar to, like, the Ted Bundy case where he had yeah. women just fawning over him and, like, one girl met him in prison or whatever and married him. Yeah. Like, and yeah, yeah. I was... Sorry. I was just gonna say, like, throughout, like, you talking about the trial and how famous it was and stuff, like, I was thinking about Ted Bundy as well. Like, it's... It's similar to the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial, like you were saying, but at the same time, like, at least they were already famous celebrities, like that people had their own individual reasons to like them. But like, it seems like people were adoring these criminals just because they were good looking, sadistic people. Like it's unreal. Right. And like, I get that there's an interest in it. Like we have a whole podcast talking about these people, but it's not like, we don't come from that idolization standpoint. Like I just don't, understand how people can see it from that point of view you know what i mean like we're still able to recognize wow this was horrific and we under like we don't know what the victims have gone through because we haven't ourselves but we understand we that can it's sympathize a, yeah like it's a terrible yeah terrible thing yeah. that they've gone through but like we can't sit here and be like oh my god like i wish i could marry richard ramirez like no that's disgusting yeah I had something that I was going to add. Oh, um, I really want to do an episode on, like, the how the fame of killing affects killers. Like, yeah. even with the Luca Magnata, like, oh my gosh. he did that because he wanted to be famous or whatever. And, like, kind of explore a little bit about how that affects people. And how, like, even with this huge trial, people who are unstable would see that and be like, oh my gosh, like, this is so amazing. Like, if I want to be famous, I just need to start brutally murdering people to make a name for myself, and then people will notice me. Which is incredibly sad and very scary. Right? And even there's footage of him in trial. Like, Ramirez would, like, turn around, like, wink at the woman behind him and, like, wave and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, ugh, it just makes my skin boil. Yeah, definitely. Um... But to carry on from that little tangent, um, the trial was somewhat interrupted on August 14th. Um, one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, she didn't end up showing up one day. And so she ended up being found shot dead in her apartment. And a lot of the jurors felt or and feared that somehow Ramirez was behind this and made it happen while he was behind bars. Um, They didn't know how or why, um, but they were all worried that they could be next. And so ultimately it did end up being her boyfriend who had shot her at the time, not Ramirez. But the jurors were still very, very frightened by this. And the individual who had placed Singletary was actually too scared to kind of return to her house after the court or after court, Um, which I would be... Like, if I was a juror on a high-profile case like this, I would not want my face shown. I Mm -mm. 
yeah, I would be terrified well, for the rest of my life. They can't show your face, can they, until after the trial's done, right? Like, jurors are, I guess, See, not to the people in the case, but, like, they can't advertise who you are or, like, give your outside name. Outside like, of the court. One. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of the court, yeah. But I know, like, of the few cases that I've sat in, like, the few trials I've sat in that did have a jury, like, you can see who they are and, like, you can, if you recognize one, you recognize one. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I know, okay, the trial was televised or it was, footage was taken of the trial. I don't know if they would, like, take footage of the jurors. I don't see them doing that. For the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, they didn't. Okay, okay, so that would yeah. make sense then, yeah. So, unless you were in that courtroom and recognized someone, um, there would be no way of getting names, I would think. But, like, their faces were st- would still be shown. Yeah. I'm surprised they had them go home. I feel like if for such an intense case, you should have them, yeah. like, locked in a hotel with a policeman outside of their door. Yeah, yeah. I definitely would have expected them to, like, sequester this jury and, like, yeah. keep them away from media, put them in a hotel for their safety. Like, I'm really surprised that they didn't. Did yeah. that become, like, has that always been a thing or was it? Like, did they kind of learn their lesson after a couple of these cases to be like, mm, maybe we should not send this these jurors home? You know what I mean? I have no idea. I don't know if you guys know. I just question that came up on my mind right now. I just Googled I'm it. not sure either. Find. Oh, okay. Good stuff. They stopped the jury sequestration in 1850. The first trial for murder in Minnesota and the jury was oh. sequestered. So, like... It would have. Yeah. According to my quick Google search. Okay. Interesting. I'm not sure if they talked about that. I will. Not going to lie. Didn't read the entire book. Only half of it because I did not have time before we recorded this episode. So possibly in the last half of the book, maybe, um... If I finish it, I will let you know. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, but so the trial ended September 20th, 1989, and Ramirez was found guilty of multiple charges, including 13 counts of murder, 14 counts of burglaries, 11 counts of sexual assault, and five counts of attempted murder. On November 7th of that same year, he was sentenced to death and... Um, he was sentenced to death in the gas chamber, I guess they had. I always forget that they did that. Um, but he was on death row for 23 years before he fell ill with um, B-cell lymphoma, which is like a cancer. He also had chronic hepatitis C infection in addition to chronic substance abuse. So all of these um, illnesses, I'd say, led to his death of natural causes on June 7th. 2013 um during his spree he was very adamant and believed that satan was with him and that he would be protected by satan if he stayed evil in his heart and showed no mercy um so i think that was a lot of why he did what he did not why but kind of bolstered his violence um and investigators still believe that there are many cases that most likely were committed by Ramirez. They just weren't either linked to him or they were cold cases or they've never been reported. 
Um, but it was in 1994 that Ramirez agreed to be interviewed by Philip Carlo, who is the author of the Life and Crimes book. Um, in kind of my view of it, since a lot of the information came from Ramirez himself, I kind of wonder how much is exaggerated and how much is fact. You know, like, I know there were a lot of surviving victims that could give their view and their side and everything to kind of corroborate the evidence. But with Ramirez himself, like, he, I don't know, I think he just had a tendency to spin things, which I hope Philip Carlo understood and investigators understood. But, yeah. Yeah. That's all um, I have for Ramirez. Thank you. Uh, people who worship Satan terrify me to my core. That is something mm-hmm. I will never understand. Yeah, um, I don't get it at all. Especially when you said, like, if he stayed evil in his heart and showed no mercy. Like, that's terrifying. That? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, holy. Um, yeah, it reminds me of... um. David Berkowitz as well. He was another one that I can think of that had a lot to do with Satan. Yeah. But, yeah. I don't know. No. Yeah. I don't love it. That's so scary. And I can't believe he died in 2013. I know. Relatively er soon. mm, Recent. Wow. Recent. Yeah. Um, And I really want to read The Life in Crimes. That book sounds... It's really good. From what I read, it was phenomenal. And they have like 16 pages of photographs from the the cases um, yeah obviously not very very graphic as some of them could be um but yeah no it was it was very well written no that's really really cool well thank you nicole that's really interesting um uh, richard ramirez is one of the few serial killers that i really don't know much about and i'd never really heard anything about and i started the docu-series but then i never finished it um it's so good i recommend you yeah. finish it no especially the, the episode. last episode oh <laughs> no i've literally only seen the first episode yeah. we watched it for the um forensic science society um i was like oh my gosh this is so good and then i just never watched it again <laughs> yeah the Maybe last episode that. has footage of them like man hunting him down interviews with the people who attacked him um footage from the trial like that kind of thing it's really well done no that's so cool um all right so with the case study out of the way rebecca did you want to tell us about the different typologies of stalking and kind of expand a bit on what we started to talk about last episode yeah i would love to um so As I had said in the last episode, uh, I am very excited to continue talking about this topic of stalking, uh, just because there's so many intricacies and typologies related to it uh, that it's really, really easy to fall into a rabbit hole of research when you're looking at this. Um, So when discussing typologies today, I'm going to refer to like a couple of the behaviors of each type, like just like what's common amongst them. Uh, So I just wanted to give like a little brief recap of the general behaviors that stalkers might exhibit. Um, And I would also like to note that a stalker doesn't have to do all of these behaviors in order to be considered a stalker. That's kind of why there is typologies. 
Um, so in the last episode, I sort of just listed a variety of behaviors that they might exhibit, but I just wanted to provide some broader categories of stalking behaviors that just make it easier to talk about and visualize typologies later. So according to uh, Margot Watt, who wrote the textbook that I used heavily during this research, uh, and is also cited in our source list if you wanted to read it, it's super interesting. Um, there's eight broad behaviors that stalkers might exhibit, and each of them have their own like list of actions that are associated with them. Uh, so the categories sort of go from like least to most severe. And this isn't me saying that there's some that are less frightening or dangerous than others, um, as all stalking situations have the potential to increase in severity and all of them are traumatizing. Um, I'm just saying that they sort of go from like least to most violent towards the victim. So the first behavior is hyper intimacy. And this is what Journey was kind of talking about last episode when we talked about love bombing. Um, this at first to the person like the victim might seem like it could be sweet, like maybe the stalker just really likes them. It could be their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whoever. Um, but it's when it becomes excessive. Uh, some of the actions associated with it are like showering the victim with gifts, being really clingy towards them, overly jealous, not letting them go anywhere without them because they they just don't ever want to be separated. And it's it's generally just, as the title explains, it's hyper-intimacy. Um, so the second behavior is mediated contact. And this, at least to the extent that I could find in my research, is essentially cyber-stalking uh, and trying to communicate with the victim through non-contact means like email, texting, phone calls, uh, stuff like that. Um, something else under this would be like stalking a victim's social media and bombarding them with comments, likes, shares, etc. on their new and old posts um, on like any other socials. So like, it's, it's kind of like when someone says, oh, like I have a crush on this person and I, I stalked their socials. And it's like, that's, that in and of itself can't be considered stalking, but it's when it's, it's frequent, like they're doing it to all of them, you know, <laughs> how it is. Um, so it's essentially just cyber stalking. Um, the third behavior is interactional contacts. And in my opinion, this is kind of the first behavior that most people think of when someone mentions a stalker. Um, interactional contacts is basically like a half step up from mediated contact. So instead of only trying to contact them through like non-direct ways like email and texting and stuff, um, it's when they, the stalker goes out of their way to try and make direct in-person contact with the victim. Um, and this could either be through the victim themselves, like trying to contact them, or even by trying to contact their friends, families, coworkers, anyone kind of in their social circle. So some examples of this uh, is the stalker trying to be in the same location as the victim. Like if they know the victim is going to be at a cafe or a movie at this certain time, then they're going to go there only because they know that their victim is going to be there and they have a chance at seeing or talking to them. Um, this could also extend to like trying to get a job at their workplace just to be near them or registering for classes that they know the victim is in just so that they can always be around them and kind of keep, keep an eye on what their victim is doing. 
The fourth behavior is another one that is commonly associated with stalking in terms of how the public typically thinks about it, and this is surveillance. Uh, This occurs when the stalker makes a systematic effort to gather information about the victim. This could be done through mediated contact like cyber stalking, um, but it could also be through interactional contact uh, like following them to places that they hang out, but like trying to stay out of view and just take pictures of them. Um, it could even be through like stealing their mail. So like if they just have one of those easy mailboxes uh, or if they break into one, like just to get more information about like their day-to-day lives without the victim knowing they're doing so. A more recent example that's become very prevalent in the news lately um, is the use of Apple AirTags, like basically just covert GPS trackers, which don't, they weren't intended to be used maliciously, but people have started to use them maliciously to track people that they want to know where they are, like victims of stalking. Um, The fifth behavior would be invasion. And this is where we begin to get into behaviors that have been illegal even before stalking in and of itself became a crime. So invasion is pretty self-explanatory by the name. This is when the stalker begins getting more intrusive in the victim's life, going to the point of breaking into their home, trespassing on their property, and it could even extend, again, to cyber crimes, like hacking into their computers or phones to take control either of their social media or just to gather even more information about the person. The sixth behavior is harassment and intimidation. And this is when the stalker begins to become verbally but not physically aggressive while not going so far as to threaten the person. So this could be done through like excessive persistence of trying to contact and be noticed by the victim so they're no longer trying to hide from them. Um, And could also be through going up and directly insulting them or trying to spread harmful rumors about them to people they know to try and ruin their reputation and kind of break them down. The seventh behavior is coercion and threat, which is almost the same as the harassment intimidation, but more direct in its intention. Um, When exhibiting this behavior, a stalker might threaten to harm the victim and or their friends, families, pets, property, and they might even uh, try to threaten people they know but aren't friends with, like their acquaintances or coworkers. Um, or in some cases, as was the case of Colin McGregor with Patricia Allen that we spoke about last night, they last night, sorry, last episode, um, they may even threaten to harm themselves in attempt to like guilt trip the target into controlling them. The final broad behavior category that was explained by Watt is aggression, and this is essentially any contact or violent crime, whether it be committed against the victim or those they know. Um, It could even be property damage uh, to the victim's things, such as vandalism and arson. Um, But basically, this category is any property or violent crime, such as assault, sexual assault, and murder. So... Now that I've briefly reviewed the behaviors a stalker can exhibit, we can get into the typologies. So as stalking is a new crime, it has been happening forever, but it's a new crime. Research into typologies is also relatively new. It's only really occurred within the last few decades. Um, And various researchers have developed their own sets of typologies individually. So they're not really... um, 
talking to other research groups when they're developing these. Uh, because of this, there are a lot of similarities throughout the sets of typologies. Um, I'd like to preface the discussion on this by saying that there hasn't been significant research into the reliability and validity of them, but typically the studies that have been conducted have found that some of the typologies can be considered valid just due to the consistencies and similarities between the separate researchers' independent studies into types of stalkers. So because there are so many typologies and also by the end of this episode, typologies is not going to sound like a word anymore. Um, I'm going to start with the kind of umbrella terms that Watts created to describe the types of stalkers identified by different researchers. And then I'll delve a little bit deeper into a couple of the typologies of each umbrella term, just because there are some of them have like five or six typologies in each. So there are five general typologies of stalker um, that were created like by five different research groups. So this might get slightly confusing because of the amount of studies I'm going to try to explain. Um, so I'll try to keep it concise and not confusing. Um, but the primary five studies that I'm going to be talking about during this are going to be by Zona et al. in 1993, Holmes in 2001, Mullen et al., in 1999, 2000, and in 2006, and Sheridan at Boom in 2002. Um, I do plan on posting in our source images the table that I'm referring to throughout this, uh, but it does have a copyright on it, so I'm hoping that with enough citations and credits to it, I can still post it. <laughs> so the five umbrella typologies are acquire new relationship, intimidate or harass for rejection, personal gain, power and control, and anger and retribution. I'll get into all of these now in a bit more detail and just explain one or two from each of them that are more in, most interesting or valid based on previous studies. So the acquire new relationship type is the largest umbrella um, of these all, and this includes eight typologies from uh, four studies total. These typologies are erotomanic, lust stalker, Incompetent suitor, delusional fixation, love obsessional, love scorned stalker, intimacy seeker, and love seeker. All of these typologies are described as people who stalk in the hope of or the expectation of getting a romantic relationship out of the victim. And this is either because they assume that the victim is in love with them or because they feel that they deserve this person's love and affection. Um, interestingly, Erotomaniac or erotomanic, sorry, is the only stalker typology that is technically considered a mental disorder. And interestingly, this typology is also the only one that is predominantly women. So erotomania is a subtype of delusional disorder, which is a type of schizotypal personality disorder. Uh, delusional disorder is characterized by the DSM-5 as having delusions that last for one or more months, but the person doesn't meet the main criterions for being diagnosed as schizophrenic, and their overall functioning behavior is not considered impaired or bizarre because of the delusions, uh, and also that the delusions are not an effect of like another medical condition or use of any illicit substances. So the subtype 
uh, Rodomanic uh, specifically applies to the central theme of the delusions that another person is in love with them. And it could be someone they know. It could also be a stranger. Specifically, um, it is towards another person that is not actually in love with them. Uh, they just believe that they are. Um, and although there are other typologies, uh, such as celebrity stalker, that could fall into this category, um, not all of them do, simply because this one like specifically targets those that have the erotomanic personality disorder. So... Another typology under acquire new relationship demonstrates how it's not only just love or affection necessarily that the stalker is seeking. Um, so one of these would be the lust stalker. And this one was described by Holmes in 2001. This is a person who's motivated to stalk by sex and they don't care whether the sex that they get is consensual or not. Uh, there are people who typically target Sorry, these are people who typically target strangers that possess characteristics that appeal to them. So it's not uncommon for one of these stalkers to have multiple victims who look similar to each other. It could be argued that Richard Ramirez could possibly fall under this typology uh, because he did have multiple victims of sexual assault. However, he doesn't really fit all of the criteria that lists that lust stalkers more commonly uh, exhibit. Uh, because typically these stalkers commit sexual assault, but don't go so far as to murder or continue stalking their victims after they have assaulted them. The next umbrella typology, which is intimidate or harass for rejection, is defined as individuals who are essentially trying to get revenge for being rejected. Uh, and they're doing this through intimidation, coercion, and or even punishment. So this category contains only individuals who stalk people that are known to them and that they've been rejected by in the past. It could be a former partner or it could just be someone that they have pursued romantically, but their efforts were declined before ever getting in a relationship. And this umbrella includes simple obsessional, domestic stalker, rejected, resentful, and former partner. One of the most common types of stalker, at least in the typologies of Zoma et al., is the uh, simple obsessional stalker. And these are people who stalk and pursue a former romantic partner in attempt to salvage the relationship that they once had. Or if they can't salvage it, they're at least seeking retribution from the victim uh, because they think that they've been harmed by the breakup and they want to basically be repaid for that somehow. Often, according to Zora et al., uh, these stalkers are typically a man, and more often than not, they suffer some form of personality disorder or substance abuse problem, uh, but they don't fall into the erotomanic personality disorder. And this type of stalker does not usually use violence in their efforts. Uh, they typically cause more emotional trauma than physical. One other typology I wanted to explain from this umbrella is uh, former partner, and this is described by Sheridan A. Boom in 2002. Sheridan A. Boom developed this typology specifically for use from law enforcement agencies to use when they're investigating stalking cases. Um, and the former partner typology is similar to the simple obsessional type that I talked about just earlier. Um, but that's why it's included under the same umbrella, just because it shares a lot of commonalities with it. Um, 
this one, the former partner typology, it's much more common for the, uh, it to involve violence, often causing harm either to the victim or their property or to the victim and property. And in the case of Colin McGregor, it is quite clear that he was a former partner stalker as he stalked his former partner, Patricia Allen, who broke up with him, but he didn't want to break up and he was seeking retribution, whether that be through regaining the relationship or through some other form of violence. So to try to win her back, he harassed her relentlessly and started non-violently through excessive calling and following. But when that didn't work, he ended up uh, leading into uh, property damage or just breaking into her home. And ultimately, he did end up killing her, as we discussed last episode. So the next umbrella term is personal gain, and this refers to stalkers who are predominantly seen as predatory or sadistic, and they stalk their victims solely for the purpose of gaining power and control over them. This umbrella includes just two typologies, and they're false victimization and hit stalker. So the false victimization typology described by Zona et al. is kind of bizarre, but it's really interesting. Um, in these cases, the stalker actually claims that they are the victim of stalking. Um, they do still go out and stalk a victim. However, they play it as if they're the ones being followed and harassed, not the victim that they're, uh, they're pursuing. These cases are pretty rare, so there's not a whole lot known about the motivation behind it. Uh, but it is suspected that they do this because they either desperately want some form of attention um, or they f- they feel like they need to be seen as a victim, or they may even have a fear of abandonment from someone that had stalked them in the past. The hit stalker uh, stalks victims typically because they're paid to do so. Uh, so essentially, these are hitmen in this typology. Uh, this is when someone pays them or promises them some sort of material goods to kill another individual for them. And more often than not, the stalker is a stranger to the victim. So the victim probably wouldn't really see it coming. The next umbrella typology is power and control, which arguably uh, is the same as the previous personal gain type, but it targets more specific uncommon typologies. The power and control typology, they still do it for personal gain, uh, but the personal gain that they're getting from it is having power and control over another human being. So this typology includes celebrity stalker, predatory, and sadistic. So a celebrity stalker is a bit of a tricky typology just because um, there's as many people who could fall under this typology could also fall under others in the acquire new relationship umbrella. Um, But in this one, the stalker has an innate belief that a celebrity is in love with them. And so they attempt to pursue them in hopes that this relationship will come to fruition. And they think that this relationship that they're entitled to is going to happen. Um, They often also do this in hopes of gaining fame by being associated with the celebrity. So I guess even if they don't get the relationship, they're still going to get some sort of fame out of everything they're doing. In some extreme cases, and I found this one really neat, um, this typology could even 
evolve into identity fusion in where the stalker is so infatuated with a certain celebrity that they start actually believing that either they are the celebrity or that they deserve to be that celebrity more than the celebrity themselves deserve to be them. A notable case in this typology is that of Mark David Chapman. Uh, So Chapman was so obsessed with John Lennon of the Beatles that he began dressing like him and trying to model his appearance around him. Uh, But he even began learning more skills that John Lennon had, such as playing the guitar. And he even ended up marrying a woman that looked eerily similar to Yoko Ono, who is John Lennon's wife. Chapman felt that uh, he loved John Lennon so much that he deserved to be Lennon more than Lennon himself deserved to be Lennon. Um, So on December 8th of 1980, Chapman followed Lennon to his apartment in New York City and shot and ultimately killed him. Uh, He was arrested for this, but it just goes to show how extreme some celebrity stalkers can go when this happens. Another typology under power and control that can be argued that Richard Ramirez may fall under is sadistic. Um, After hearing Nicole talk about the case of Ramirez, it's very clear that he was indeed a sadistic person. Um, And under the sadistic typology, the stalker's main goal of stalking the victim is to just intimidate and terrorize them. Um, These individuals are motivated simply just by getting pleasure out of terrorizing other people and seeing the fear. And in this typology, there is also a very high risk for extreme violence against victims, which we did see in Richard Ramirez's case. The final umbrella term is anger and retribution. And this only actually contains one typology, so it didn't really need its own umbrella. Uh, But this one contains the political stalker. So the political stalker could arguably be placed into the same category as the celebrity stalker because they are stalking a like high status individual. Um, But these individuals only target political figures. Um, This one was described by Holmes and it's that the political stalker often believes that they personally know the political figure despite never knowing them simply because that they have a high profile job in political office. So they're, they're just everywhere in the media. Um, Often these stalkers feel that they've somehow been wronged by the political figure um, and they stalk out of anger instead of affection, which is one of the differences between celebrity stalkers and political stalkers. Um, And so these stalkers often feel like they've, somehow been wronged. It could either be through maybe the laws that this figure helped pass. It could be the beliefs that they support or like the, um, for some reason I'm forgetting the word, but like it could be that the stalker is a Republican, but they don't like that a Democrat is in power and that sort of thing, basically. Um, But usually in these situations, they're seeking to harm the political figure in some way because they feel that they need retribution for what this political figure has done to them, even though they've never actually met. So essentially this is any person who has killed or attempted to kill a political figure in a public setting um, can arguably considered a political stalker. And some examples of this one would be Lee Harvey Oswald, who had killed Abraham Lincoln 
Uh, but it could also be John Hinckley Jr., who attempted to but failed to assassinate uh, Ronald Reagan just two months after he was inaugurated as president in 1981. I have a question. Um, yeah. So do you think um, that there are less political stalkers now because we hear of less like attempted assassinations on our political leaders or do you think that we just don't hear about that be- not because they didn't happen but because if they tell people that that happened then more people will want to do that that is a very good question i think it could almost go both ways and yeah. i mean in a way we might be able to consider a political stalker now because these were created before social media became so big. We could almost be argued that there are more political stalkers, but ones that target them through cyber stalking and like attacking them, trying to attack their reputation um, and just not going to the lengths of killing them. Um, I definitely think some of these need to be updated. And if I do find updated versions of these, I'll post those in the sources as well. But these are like, what were most commonly known and they are outdated for the times that we're in right now. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so that's kind of my overview of like typologies of stalkers and stuff. I recognize it was a little bit all over the place. Um, I tried my best to explain as many typologies as I could without having too much overlap as most of the researchers who developed these, Um, like I said earlier, develop them individually. So there is a lot of overlap between each researcher's typology groupings. Um, So like I said earlier, I will be posting this photo in our source images and just hoping I don't get copyrighted. Um, I'll be posting it on our website uh, because it's a really great, just concise table of all the typologies and it explains where each of them fit in these umbrellas. Um, And as well, it just gives them a brief description Sometimes a case example, if there was one, like, prominent enough to be noticed by the media. Um, And in a couple of them, it also provides, uh, like, the prevalence of these stalkers in relation to others. Um, But it isn't for all of them, so I don't know how reliable those statistics can be right now. Um, But like I had said earlier, most of the information that I discussed today, I found while reading the textbook Explorations in Forensic Psychology, Cases in Criminal and Abnormal Behavior by Margot C. Watt. Um, Some textbooks can be really dry, but this one's actually really interesting, especially if you enjoy the format of our podcast where we discuss a case study and then a science, uh, because every chapter focuses on a different type of criminal behavior and then gives a case study associated with it and then talks about the science behind that case study and goes into like the diagnostics of it and stuff. So it's, it's pretty really interesting. Cool. Yeah. I really recommend it. Um, yeah. I, if you want to read it, I can give you my login for the PDF reader I use for it. Cause I had to buy it on this one specific download. Um, but yeah, that's all I directly had to say about typologies of stalkers um i know you wanted to talk a little bit now about like speculation of like maybe why richard ramirez was considered a stalker when he didn't easily fit into any of these categories um so just for your guys's like uh reference sake i put the table that i'll post on our website on one of the slides so like you can look at it and 
see. Um, but the two that I think really the one that I think is closest to the reason Richard Ramirez is considered the night stalker um, is on the second to last line. And it's, it's the one that is sadistic. That would make the most sense to me. Like I think, sorry, my computer's having a meltdown right now. I'm trying to see this. Um, although he didn't do like the stalking, aspect like i don't know when i think of stalking i always think of following a person or like keeping tabs on everything they do and all of this stuff but like he didn't do that but he did obviously seek to intimidate and terrorize and he had a high potential for violence um so yeah i would definitely say sadistic i feel like they didn't have i mean that one what came out in 2002 yeah this was long before they had the typologies though so Maybe they were ahead of their time. Yeah, like I like I wonder how many of these I mean, I, I at least know the Zona et al. one was developed specifically on case studies of stalking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um but yeah, like I without the typologies, I guess, and like with what everybody knew at the current time about stalking, like I don't really understand why he was the night stalker. Just because yeah. like you said, he didn't really fit into like that what we usually think of like keeping tabs on them and following them and excessive like calling, but maybe it just sounded cool. And he always committed crimes like in the night. So they were like, Oh, he's the night stalker. But yeah, I don't know. It's a really interesting and really devastating case. Um, But I think they could have chosen a better moniker for him. Yeah. I agree. I mean, he did have, um, a couple aliases actually he had like the walk-in killer and um i forget what the other one was but they the other one like they didn't have stalker in it yeah it's i think out of like the nicknames he was given the night stalker definitely has i'm not this is gonna sound like not great it has the best ring to it like it's it's the catchiest one of them all, which is probably why it stuck. Um, But yeah, I think there were, there's definitely a lot of interesting, sad cases of stalking out there. If you wanted to learn more about individual typologies, like I think you could ideally find a, like if we wanted to do an episode for every individual typology with a case study, like we probably could. Yeah. We're not going to turn into a stalking uh podcast but ideally it could happen (laughs) but yeah so that's all i have to say on the i'm gonna call it the mess of typologies because i think researchers should really um work together on that and not try to create their own i think essentially we should be trying to make one set of typologies that like we expand on and test reliability and validity uh, just because with so many, like, it's it's hard to actually know which one to use. Like, one of them was developed by a research group with the police in uh, L.A. And then another one was developed by researchers who said they did it for law enforcement. But both of them are different, have different typologies. So it's really hard to know which ones to use, especially in a legal setting, if you wanted to bring this up in a, in, like, a conviction case. 
Um, okay, well, thank you, Rebecca, for telling us all about the typologies. Um, that was very interesting. I did not know a lot about that. Um, so that was really, really cool. Um, so our next topic is going to be the wrongful conviction of Ray Crone and forensic podiatry. Um, I don't know a lot about that episode. I mean, that topic or that guy. So that'll be really interesting. Um, for our next episode. Um, again, another case of wrongful conviction and how, um, like, forensic podiatry played a role in that. I don't know if it was specific, like, footprints or, um, like, shoe mark evidence, kind of like what was in the Richard Ramirez, but I think it'll be really, really interesting. Um, and I just wanted to talk to you guys about, like, the Al Capone tunnels that I went to go see in the Moose, in Moose Jaw. Um, it was really interesting because I didn't really come across anything in my research for Al Capone about him being in Moose Jaw, but Moose Jaw is known as, like, Little Chicago, and so that's where a lot of, supposedly, a lot of their information they don't have, like, hard fact on, um, but they're, like, supposedly Al Capone was actually in Moose Jaw and was, like, running booze and had a whole bunch of bootleggers, and it was so cool, um, but they don't know 100% for sure if he was actually there. It's just highly, highly, um, like, speculated, I guess. Um, but yeah, that was really cool. And I like, oh, Nicole says I should mention Moose Jaw is in Saskatchewan. For those of you who are not familiar with Canadian cities, um, I went to go visit my roommate in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And so, um, yeah, it was really cool because it's something that it's known for and people come from all over the world for these two or these tours. And it was very interesting because it wasn't like a tour. Um, like they didn't take you down into the tunnels and kind of walk you around and be like, oh, hey, this happened here and this happened here. It was more of like a play. So they would like have actors and stuff. And I totally threw off this one actor because she asked a question and she didn't, I didn't answer it in the way that she had it in her script. So I she, I threw her off her script a little bit and I felt so, so bad. I was like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But no, it was really cool because they kind of like treated you like you were a bootlegger and they were like, okay, we're going to start here. Blah, 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 blah. This is the rundown. And then we moved around and then we went down through like some secret doors and into the tunnels and underneath. And then you start in one building across the street from the like tunnel office building where you buy your tickets and then you end up in the basement of the office building where you bought your tickets. And it's so cool because you're like, I don't even know how I got here. I was just walking around in the dark and then I just made it here. It was so, so cool. That's so, yeah, yeah, like I Sorry, I was just to say, I didn't even know Al Capone like, had any connections to Canada. So like when you were texting us about that the other day, I was like, what? Like that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. And I totally forgot that I knew that he went or supposedly went to Moose Jaw and had business there. But it was really, really cool. So if you're ever in Moose Jaw, check out the tunnels of Moose Jaw. All of their information was on that story, I guess, but I can post it again if anyone's interested. But they're really cool. The tour was like 45 minutes, and it was really neat. Um, so but yeah. if you're ever in Moose Jaw, to our listeners, hit that up. Yeah, exactly. They should really sponsor us. They don't allow you to take pictures or videos, obviously, in the tour because they want you to come do the tour, which I was so upset because I was going to, like, vlog it the whole time on, like, our story or whatever. Be like, this is so cool. But, um, 
a lot of the pictures that I posted were just actually in the building where you're allowed to take pictures and they have like a couple other tours which are really really interesting um but yeah so definitely go check that out and so I looked up stalking jokes and they just were not funny um so I have a chemistry joke (laughs) what do you call an acid with an attitude oh I feel like this is gonna my first thought went to basic but that's not the opposite (laughs) so I don't know what do you call an acid with an attitude a mean oh acid oh my gosh that's good (laughs) i like that one (laughs) yeah and it has a picture of like um wow i don't know chemistry but anyway like an acid drawing um like line drawing and then it says give me your lunch and he has like an angry face um but yeah i figured that was a little more appropriate than people making fun of stalking um that's fair so yeah (laughs) with that being said nicole where can people find us People can find us in so many places. We are on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. Our website is whattheforensics.ca. And our email is whattheforensics at gmail.com. And we're always open for comments, concerns, questions, anything that you think of. Always hit us up for that. Yes. And... We should start having you guys like rate and review us so we can read your comments and kind of, I would really like to hear some reviews if you guys could do that. Um, read them out so on yeah, the show rate, or review, like subscribe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, comment, subscribe. See you next week. Yeah, literally. Um, well, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next episode. Bye. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm